Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. So this past Sunday, January 15th, 2023, I celebrated eight years of sobriety, which still blows my mind eight years later. Those of you that know a little bit about my story know that 15 years of using, it was almost impossible for me to stop. The last five years of my use were really, really ugly. IV use, homelessness, jails, programs, and it looked like I wasn't going to quit. I, I thought in my soul that I wasn't going to be able to quit. I like felt it in my bones and I was wrong. And so today I'm actually going to replay an episode from season two because it's been a while since we revisited my origin story. I tell stories here and there, but today's episode, this is it. This is the whole shebang, 45 minutes, how I was raised, how I got started using, how I got into heroin, most importantly, how I stopped and stayed stopped this time. And if you heard it the first time in season two, I think you'll enjoy listening to it again. There are several mindset shifts that I still share and use to this day. And if you're newer in recovery, I hope you get a lot of value out of this episode. As always, let me know what you guys think. This is actually my share at a 12-step world convention in August of 2021. And I had a lot of fun with it. I think that you guys are gonna, I think you guys are gonna enjoy this. Nodpod shout out of the week this week. This is an Apple review. I hope this review reaches Janine. Janine, congratulations on eight years. I have almost 15 months and I have been able to accomplish things that on paper should have been beyond my reach. Your honest, raw account of what it was like, what happened and what it's like now, and your experience, strength and hope is the reason your podcast is my favorite. I think you're my biggest fan. I hope my message reaches you. Keep doing what you're doing. Sincerely, Sarah S. Sarah, your message did reach me and it really touched me. Thank you so much for your kind words. My favorite, favorite thing to do is go look at my show reviews. And when there's a new one that pops up, it just makes my day. So thank you so much for your kind words. Thank you for taking the time to do that. I really, really appreciate it. And congratulations to you on almost 15 months. That's amazing that you've already achieved more than you expected at this time. That is what we call in 12 step, the promises coming true for you. And I'm super happy for you. Thank you so much for the review. And NodPod, I'll see you back next week. We've got a new guest. You're going to love the episode. My name's Janine. I'm a heroin addict. And I'm so glad that more of you guys wandered in. But there was part of me that was like, okay, so that's mid- it's midnight. That's weird. Are y'all really leaving already? Okay. All right. Okay. That was going to make me really sad. Um, not to make anybody feel guilty if you have to leave or take a call or whatever, but I will take it personally. Um, I was like, midnight, shit. Okay, but then as it got closer, I was like, well, maybe that will mean fewer people will be there because I was like, and then I saw a picture of that grand ballroom on Facebook and I was like, oh my God, is that where I'm going? Like, I don't know if I'm in them, but I'm not, which is good. So, um, but I'm super, super honored and happy to be here. Um, I love the fellowship of HA and I'm, I'm proud to be a part of HA. I'm proud to be a part of Heroin Anonymous. Like I got, I got a little shirt in my gift bag and I'm really happy about that. I will rock that Heroin Anonymous shirt. And HA is the fellowship where recovery finally like took for me. And I had been in and out and in and out and in and out and in and out for a really, really, really long time. And I think it is so important. I'm, I'm getting chills while I say this. I think it is so important that we have HA and that we have a forum to talk about Suboxone, Methadone, Hep C, needles, needle exchange, all that stuff that's unique to heroin addicts and the kick and, and you know, all that stuff that just makes it different. And I'm so 
I'm so glad to be here, and, and, I'm, and I'm so glad that you guys are here, and, and I'm really honored to be here. Um, I'm actually also from here. Are any of you guys from Peachtree City, by any chance? No? Anyone from Georgia? You're from Peachtree City? I was born here, but... <laughs> uh, so I'm from Peachtree City, actually. I'm from Georgia. Um, I'm in San Diego now, and I've been out there for, like, 20 years. Um, but it was kind of cool to come back. I thought I'd come back as, like, a famous actress. But I was like, that's cool. I can come back as a drug addict. That's fine. <laughs> Very successful drug addict 20 years later. That's cool. Um, but I'm really proud, you know, and it's kind of cool to come full circle. So, and being from Peachtree City, so the town that I'm from and the high school that I went to was super academically oriented. And I was very academically uh, committed. And that was a big focus of mine in school, um, was doing really, really well. And I did, I did really, really well. And I got these great SAT scores and I got an early admission to like this great college in Washington, DC. And, you know, I had all these, I had all these plans. And my senior year of high school, my, my parents split up and I lost my fucking mind. I lost my fucking mind. I lost my mind. And I left to go to that fancy school. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't able to make it happen, you know, at that time. So I left after a brief period and I went to the University of Georgia in Athens. Um, and I couldn't make Georgia work either, man. I just wasn't there. And so I decided that it would be easier to be a famous, Oscar-winning, Emmy-winning actress, that that would be easier than going to class. And that felt to me like a logical conclusion that I had come to, which I now recognize as sort of like an addict mentality, right? This idea that, you know, like delusions of grandeur and the quick, the quick fix and easy money and, you know, like I didn't want to do the hard things because the reality is it's not about my folks splitting up. College had gotten harder than high school, you know? And, and as an addict, I was, you know, I'm, I was like the epitome of that idea of the rules don't apply to me, you know? And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to take the bus to the place. And I didn't want to wake up early. And I didn't want to buy those books. And I didn't want to do any of that stuff. So I had started doing, and this kind of all matters later, but so I had started doing a little bit of Coke in Athens. No big deal. A little bit. Not a lot. A little bit of drinking here and there. Go to LA. Spend like eight years in LA. And during that time, my Coke use and my, and my drinking progressed over time. But it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. It was Coke bad, which is very, very different from heroin bad, right? As you guys know, totally different worlds. It wasn't that bad. But after eight years, it got to the point where I had to leave, right? Um, my, you know, I had cars blowing up because I wasn't changing the oil because I was buying Coke all the time. And, so I ended up like on the verge of losing my place and I moved down to San Diego. And that's kind of where everything got, that's where everything progressed. So in San Diego, I, um, I started doing heroin at the age of 30. I started, I picked up a heroin habit at the age of 30, which is so, such a ridiculous thing to do. Um, so I started doing heroin at the age of 30 and what happened was I learned what like heroin bad is, you know, over those, over those next five years. And so the last five years of my use of a 15 year period, the last five years I was either homeless or I was in jail or I was in a program and I didn't go to fancy programs. I went to like parole funded programs and county funded programs. And I was constantly in a state of like detox kicking, um, 
during that time, I got arrested more often. My last arrest was for strong arm robbery, and they were going to give me a strike in the state of California and send me to prison. And, you know, everything, I had started using needles. Everything had, the stakes had greatly increased. And what ended up happening was after about five years of that, so what I would do is I would go to a program for a little bit. And, man, you guys, like, I could not stop using I could not stop using. I could not stop smoking meth and I could not stop shooting heroin. I couldn't. Like I would go to a program, I would get 60 days, I'd go on a pass and I'd end up smoking meth and then I'd end up shooting heroin. I would get caught and I would get kicked out of the program and then I would be homeless for longer. And then I would get back into a program and I was in that cycle for so long and I, I couldn't quit. I could not quit. I remember there was this one time I was at a program and I'd gotten a job and I, I also, throughout this entire time, I admit fitness, so I taught spin classes, like smoke meth in the parking lot, go teach a spin class, like shooting heroin, teaching spin, teaching bar. And sometimes it would start, yes, this lady looks very confused. It's, <laughs> it's, it's confusing to think about. Um, but I did that. That was like my jam. I would like smoke meth in the parking lot of really nice places, teach a spin class, but then eventually, like, I couldn't get dope one day and I couldn't get well and I would lose that job. But that was the cycle that I was in. And I had gotten a job teaching and I was in a program, but I had relapsed. And I was in that space where, like, you're kind of trying to do the math on the drug test and, and you know it's two and a half days, but you worked out and you drank a lot of water. So, like, maybe if they test you that day, you might pass. Like, I was, like, right in that window. And, and I really wanted to do it this time, you know? Like, I, I, I really did. And I was walking down the stairs from this gym that I was teaching at, and I just came to like a dead stop on the stairs. And I felt in my soul of my being, you're gonna die this way. Not you're gonna die overdose, but you're gonna die a dope fiend. Like this is who you are. And that was coming from me, not like a family member or a drug counselor. Like my soul was like, you're, this is who you are. This is who the fuck you are. And I have never been more scared in my life. And I share that because I was wrong, right? I was wrong. So I didn't include this, but my sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. So I have a little over six and a half years. And that was in like, I don't know, 2011. So I didn't stop right then, but I'll never forget that feeling. So what I would do is I would try to get clean and then I would, I would get into a sober living and I would relapse in the sober living and I would, I'm, very, I got very skilled at passing a drug test. I could pass your fucking drug. You guys know what I'm talking about already because these two girls are nodding. I could pass your fucking drug test, dude. You could wake me up at four in the morning and I was ready and you know that that means commitment, you know? And I, I was ready for your drug test and I would live in your sober living. And so what happened was I was in a sober living, this was in January of 2014, and I was fully strung out on heroin, living in the sober living, riding a bicycle around. I think I pretended I had a job, but like I didn't. And it was New Year's Eve. It was obviously, you know, like my hat backwards. Um, it was New Year's Eve and I'd gone out with a friend of mine that I actually used to use with. He got busted, he went to prison for like two years, got out, he was sober when we were hanging out. And I had started using, but he was always like kind of trying to like help me and he was in a sober living. And we went out for New Year's Eve. And while I was out, the owner of the sober living called me and said, hey Janine, so, you left some heroin in the bathroom and you can't come back. 
And I was like, and you know how like Dauphines, we're all like, we're all like part-time defense lawyers. And I remember I was like, we were in a, um, like an Applebee's and I was in the bar and I was like, that's fucking circumstantial evidence, man. Eight other women live there that are in recovery. You don't know that was my heroin. And in the meantime, I'm thinking like, did I leave heroin just like on the counter? That's so fucking weird. I need that. And the lady was like, and the lady was like, and I told her, and I passed a drug test that morning. I passed a piss test that morning. And I said that. And I was like, I passed a drug test this morning. You don't know that that was mine. And she said, you know what, Janine, you're right. I don't know that this was yours, but I'm pretty sure it's yours. And all the other girls are here. And so I tell you what, if you can, if you can bring me a blood test that says that you're sober, I'll support you and you can come back. And I thought, oh, fuck. No one's ever asked me for a blood test before. <laughs> so we got off the phone. And I said to my friend, so by this point, so we had left the restaurant and I said to my friend, I was like, hey man, because I didn't even have a phone. I had a flip phone. Like, do you guys, did any of you guys get the Obama welfare phone when you got out of jail? I had the flip phone. Okay. So I had a flip phone. Uh, I'd gotten out of jail and that's what I was rolling with. So, and my friend though, I was like, okay, give me your phone. I need to Google the Tri-City logo, which is the nearby hospital. And he was like, why? And I was like, I need to forge a blood test. So I need to Google what that looks like take me to Kinko's. I'm just going to tweak out on this and like come up with this fake fucking blood test. And like, I'm fine. You know, give me your phone. Let me look this up. Let's go to a Kinko's. And while I'm saying all this shit, he was just kind of sitting there like staring at me. And this guy kind of backed me up like all the time. You know what I mean? We were friends and he really backed me up and he wasn't. And I remember going, okay, come on, man. Like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to fake this. She's making me. She's making me forge this blood test. I don't want to do this. But what am I going to do? I'm going to go kick in the streets? Like, because I actually had one Suboxone, and you guys will understand this. I had one Suboxone that somebody had taken a bite out of. It was one of the pill ones. And I had traded some heroin for a friend of mine had a, a prescription that he was trading. And so I traded in some heroin, but he gave me one that had a bite out of it in a, in a cellophane. So I had a Suboxone with a bite out of it on me because my goal was actually to kick, right? But not that night. I wasn't going to kick that night, you know? Um, I always had Suboxone on me. I don't know if you guys, one of my charges was always Suboxone because I was always going to kick. So I always had a little kick bag with some benzos and Suboxone, but that just ended up being a charge every time because I never actually did it. But so... I had my one Suboxone that had been bit out of, and, um, and my buddy just standing there, and I said, what do you want me to do, man? She's, like, making me do this. What am I supposed to do? I can't kick on the street. She just kicked me out, you know? What am I supposed to do? And I remember he said, he was like, well, I mean, you could get clean. <laughs> and I thought, fuck, man. Like, I guess I could get clean, you know? And I just, I kind of sat there for a second and I'd heard stuff like that before. It had been 15 years of this. This is not the first time I've heard it. But for some reason in that moment, I just kind of like stopped my bullshit for a second and thought like, God damn, I am going to great lengths to continue destroying myself, you know? like. I guess I could just get sober. I, I guess I could do that, you know? But I wasn't ready that night, <laughs> so I didn't. And he actually got me a hotel room, and then the next day I called a heroin connection of mine, and I was like, yeah, man, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I got kicked out of my fucking sober living, and he was like my friend. 
And he said, well, I know what you can do. I got a place that you can stay. You can stay in the doghouse in my backyard if you want. And I said, great, that works for me. Awesome, really, are you serious? And he was like, yeah, you can stay in the doghouse, that's fine. And I was like, cool, good, that works for me, I'll do that. So I had my friend bring me to this alley in, uh, you guys don't know this area, but this alley in an area of San Diego where like you mostly are just buying drugs. And um, my buddy didn't want to drop me off there, but he did. And it was actually more like a shed kind of thing that the door was open and there was like a, a dog bed on the ground with like a San Diego Chargers blanket on it. And he had this big pit bull that like stayed in the shed at night and would run in and out of the garage. And he let me stay in this like doghouse shed for a few days. And I stayed there for three days in January in this doghouse. And at night, he would padlock me in from the outside, not to keep me in there. And I debate sharing this, this sometimes because I'm always worried somebody's going to think that this can't possibly be true. But I'm feeling you guys. And you guys are kind of laughing. So hopefully you'll believe me. This is why. Because he had let, and everybody knew this story, he had let another girl stay there another time. And his wife was like totally fucking crazy. And she chased her down the street with a running chainsaw. So, so that I didn't get killed with a chainsaw, he was padlocking me in at night. And like the first night, I remember sitting there and I had my legs out in front of me and I was freezing and I was smoking a meth pipe and I had a little compact with a light on it so I could pick my face better at night. And I was doing, and I would do a crossword puzzle. They had a free crossword puzzle, which made me feel like my brain was still kind of working. So I'm doing a crossword puzzle, just like a fucking scene. Crossword puzzle, meth pipe, picking my face alternately. And I remember stopping for a second and thinking like, this is my life. I'm 34 years old and I'm in this shed, padlocked in at night, hoping I don't get murdered by a chainsaw. Like this is, this is happening. This is my, like, I went to college. I did really well on my SATs and here I am in this shed, you know? And the second night, that was my big thing, how well I did on my SATs. I would tell anybody how well, I'd be smoking meth with you and be like, you know, I got a 1400 in my SATs, you know, like I would tell people that. And, you know, and I bring that up because that was important to me. And I thought that it made me different and, and it kept me using for a really long time. This idea that I was smarter than anybody else that was around me, you know, because I was like, I get that, like, you're a really bad drug addict and I feel really bad for you. And you might need to do that 12 step stuff at some point, but I do not because I am very smart and I got really good SAT scores 20 years ago. Like this was my, this was my thing, you know? And I, and I lived on that for a long time. Second night I was in there, he opened the door at like two in the morning. Oh, I guess I don't know what time it was, felt like two. He, it could have been noon. He opened the door and let some guy in there with me and padlocked the door shut. And this guy had like tattoos all over his face and on his eyelids and he was, and, and I was sitting on the, futon thingy and there was a little chair and he walked in and he was like hey can I sit with you and I said no and I kind of turned around and I kept I kept doing my crossword puzzle and at some point he just got on his phone he was playing like poker on his phone and he was in there for a few hours and then my buddy finally came and like let him out and it only occurred to me later like I was just more annoyed than anything else but it occurred to me later and it has occurred to me since like all of the things that obviously could have gone wrong. I mean, we're in the middle of this guy's 
backyard. Also, I realized later, I think I was supposed to like sleep with that guy in exchange for being in the shed. I'm not sure. Nobody said that, but like probably that's what was supposed to happen. But I was so like busy picking my face. I wasn't even thinking about it. And the guy didn't like force the issue. He just left. So I don't still to this day, like know what that was about. So I stayed there for another night after that. And the day after that, um, a friend of mine and my life in recovery starting at about that time has been just a series of real miracles. And this was one of them. So I flip phone. I had a friend who's a Marine and um, he randomly called me and he was back from Afghanistan and he was out at 29 Palms and he called me and, um, and said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, I am living in a doghouse in Oceanside and I think I'm gonna die. I'm going to die. And he said, okay, if I come get you right now, will you go? Will you be there? And I said, yeah, I'll be there. I'll, I'll go. I'll go. And there was, there was a Burger King like down the road. So I agreed to meet him at the Burger King. So I walked down the Burger King and I called my mom and my mom was on her way to church. And, um, I said, can you come see me? And she came by and I, and I wanted five bucks for a pack of cigarettes. And um, my mother would not give me $5. She had brought me a Cliff Bar and some vitamin C, which was so annoying, like vitamin C tablets, but that's the only thing that she would do at that point. But she wanted me to eat the Cliff Bar and eat vitamin C. And, um, and she said, good luck, honey. You know, I, I hope this is the time that this works for you. So my buddy showed up and um, he picked me up from the Burger King parking lot. And I had my one Suboxone and I went out to his house and uh, I ate my sub. So I actually brought a little dope with me. And that lasted for a few days. And then I ate my one sub. And then that was it. And um, I drank for another 10 days, like bottle up. So I watched Game of Thrones, had a fire going in the fireplace the whole time. And I hadn't even heard of Game of Thrones. But the guy was like, there's this great show. Are you serious? You've never heard of this? It was like 2015 when it was out. And I was like, no, I don't know what it is. But Game of Thrones like got me through this kick. Um, so I binge whatever, however many seasons were out, ate my Suboxone and, uh, January 15th, 2015 was the last time that I drank or used or, you know, did any drugs at all. And while I, how am I on time? I'm good. Right. I see. I talked for way too long. Remember? Okay. I just saw the picture of your daughter. 27. Okay. Got it. Um, so I just got distracted. Um, Anyways, so while I was out there, I had no idea what I was going to do when I came back. And after having had been homeless for five years, some of you guys might know this, I mean, I had nothing. I didn't, I didn't even have an ID. Like my mom, when I got back, was like, well, maybe I can call the, I can go with you to the uh, social security office and I'll swear an affidavit that I gave birth to you on this day in Orlando and we can prove it's you. And we had to like call and get my birth certificate because I hadn't been like a person in the world in five years, you know? And while I was out there, I arranged to live in a sober living when I came back. And this is something I always like to talk about too. So like I was someone that relapsed a lot, you know? I was in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And I hate the term chronic relapser. It reminds me of program. I don't like that term, but you guys know what I mean when I say that. And the chronic relapsers 
you know, it just feels like such a failure every time, you know. I tried so hard, you guys, and I couldn't get more than 94 days. I got 94 days one fucking time, you know, and I didn't want to be using anymore. And I was definitely a chronic relapser. But I realized actually just this year, because I've told this story so many times, and I realized that there's a massive piece of this that I've never identified, which is that while I was there, so I already had a sponsor that I was calling every day once I got my head cleared. And I knew a guy that owned a sober living and I was calling him to try to get somewhere. I had those resources because I had been in and out for so long. I already had that sponsor. I'd had her for two years. And so actually, even though we're not necessarily picking up chronological time, every single time that we're coming in, we're picking up resources and we're gaining information and they're there when we're ready to execute on that. And so that's a positive thing about coming in and out and coming in and out. So because if I had just been there the first time I kicked, I didn't even know what Suboxone was the first time I kicked. You know, I didn't know anything. But like if you're someone that's in and out, you probably have a just for today or daily reflections or something at your house. You probably have a big book laying around. You know, you probably have somebody you could text right now from the meeting and be like, hey, can you sponsor me? I'm back. And somebody will be like, I guess. You know, but like, you know people. You know what I mean? Like this guy's back. But like, you know, you know people. And in the beginning, I didn't know anyone. And that was a real advantage that I didn't realize until just this year. I just only felt like a loser, you know? But like, that's what we're gaining. So while I was out there, I arranged to live in a sober living and I came back and um, I had lived in this sober living before and I'd been caught selling heroin out of the sober living before, twice. And so this was the third time he was letting me back. And um, he said, all you can do is stay on the couch, you know? Cause like, I don't know what's gonna happen with you. Also, I didn't have any money. So I was staying on the couch <laughs> and and um, that part's important. But um, I was staying on the couch. And this is when everything, and this is what I try to share when I have longer time, when I have a 45-minute set, right? This, this is what I try to share. So I've done step work. I've had a sponsor. And I've gone to meetings. And I legitimately did that stuff every time. Like, I, I did. And I would use anyways. And sometimes I gloss over this, and I don't want to. But here's, the, here's why that stuff is important, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I know you guys hear that from everybody. Every single speaker that you hear is like, we'll go to a meeting and call your sponsor. Like, we all know that. We've all heard that. But there's kind of a cooler reason for why that matters. Neurologically, in your brain, so we have something called a reticular activation system, and it's, it's what decides what's important to us. And our belief systems teach the RRAS what's important. It's why you can hear your name in like a loud room because you've decided that your name is important to you. And your brain doesn't discriminate. You tell it what's important and your brain goes, oh, okay. So if we decide that we are chronic relapsers, our brain will start building a case to support that, right? But we can reset your RAS. We can reset what we decide is true. And so when we do steps, call a sponsor. Every time you complete a step and you're like, wow, look at me. I'm like someone that does step work. Your brain starts to go, okay, we're someone in recovery. I'm going to look for evidence to support this. And in a very really way, in a very real way, neurologically speaking, step work retrains your brain to support you in a way that will leverage you for real success. So I want to make sure I address that because the moment I got back, I of course started doing step work. I'm a big fan of step two. Step two changed my life. It brought a lot of like grace and positivity back into my life. But I know that you guys know all that kind of stuff. So like my goal is always to share stuff that what was different this time. And there were three key things that happened for me that led to a realization and some action for me. And they changed the game forever because I had done that stuff before. And this is what happened. So 
I'd been back for a couple of weeks. Like I was still sick, you know, so not that long, 10, 11 days. And because I'd been using for so long, I was, I, I, you know, and I was going to like the county places, the county places are where you use, right? And so that's, I was getting, I was trying to get sober in the same places where I use. So I'd see connects everywhere and all this kind of shit. So I was at the McDonald's and I saw a friend of mine and he was like, hey, get your ass back in here. I got a shot for you, a shot of heroin. And I didn't want to be rude. And <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. Because he was like my friend. And I, and I was, I'll be right back. But I was really scared and I didn't want to do it. And I left and I ran up the hill to my sober living. And my sober living manager and I had been through the rounds over the years because he'd kicked me out twice for selling dope on the property. We'd fight all the time. And, you know, it's dicey when you have a sober living manager like that, like if they're going to be helpful or if they're just going to like flip out on you, like you kind of never know. But I was like, fuck it, I'm going to take a chance. So I like ran up the hill and Steve was standing there and I was like, Steve. And I told him what happened. I think I'm like doing the right thing. And... And I said, and I was like, but it's so, I mean, who just gives up like free heroin, you know? Like I should go back, it's free heroin, you know? And I remember he was like, dude, that shit isn't free. Are you fucking kidding me? That's free? And he was like, that is the worst return on investment I've ever seen a human being make. That's not free. Like what has that cost you in your lifetime? How are we having this conversation? And I was like, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Okay, it's not free, fine. So I went up into my apartment and he came up like 10 minutes later because we were always fighting. And he was like, I'm not done with you. And I remember thinking, of course you're not. Like what? And he said, and he, he started like hassling me about it a little bit. And I remember saying to him, I was like, you know what? What would you do? He was a crack addict. And I was like, see, what would you do if you were just walking somewhere and somebody offered you free, free crack? You can't tell me that you wouldn't like struggle with that for a moment. And he cut me off before I was even finished. And he was like, no, 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 no. That would never happen to me. That would never happen to me because I've taken a stand in this community and people know who I am and that would never happen to me. And he said, you have been so committed to a criminal lifestyle and to a drug addict lifestyle for so fucking long. You cannot, you cannot. He was like, you're like the little kid that gets into bed right on the edge and keeps falling out in the middle of the night and has no idea why they're falling out in the middle of the night. You need to be all the way up against the bed when you sleep, up against the wall when you sleep. And he was like, you cannot ride this edge anymore. You are going to have to take a stand. You are going to have to pick a side. And he left. And I remember thinking something about that like hit me. You know what I mean? Something about that struck me. And so what I did, and this is one, the way that that turned into action for me was I got on my phone and I deleted my contacts that I knew that were using, which I had never done. And what I'm not going to do is try to sell you. You'll hear drug counselors say this a lot. They'll be like, those people aren't your friends. They want you to die like people you used to use with. Like, that's not always true. You know what I mean? Like, some of those people were my friend. But the choices that they're making no longer align with my life goals. And that's a fact. And I'm too close to that edge, right? So I did that. I deleted those contacts. I deleted those people from Facebook. Blocked them in case I changed my mind. Um, and decided to become a person in the sober living because what I also always was, I was like the person that if you relapsed, you could come tell me, you know what I mean? And I'd be like, oh shit, what are you going to do? You know, like I can help you pee clean. <laughs> like I was the person you could confide in, you know? And when you said that, I was like, I need to not be that person anymore. Like I need to be the person in the sober living that you're like, don't tell Janine, she's going to fucking tell on you. You know, like I need to all the way pick a side, you know, I need to do this. I need to be a fucking person in recovery because I can't live like this anymore, you know? And then I also, so I also took a commitment 
And that is one thing that I had never done before. And at that same sober living, I took a secretary commitment on Monday nights and I kept that commitment for the first time. I kept it for like 18 months. I didn't lose the notebook. I went every week, you know, and that was something that I had never done before. So that's what that looked like for me in action, that realization that I couldn't, I couldn't walk that line anymore where I was one foot in the dope world and talking to those guys and one foot not, that that was just not, that was not going to work for me anymore, you know? And then the second thing that happened was same guy. We were fighting again. I don't remember what happened. We had like, I had like 60 days. And he said to me, he was like, you know what? Why don't you, for once in your fucking life, become someone that takes care of someone else rather than everybody else having to take care of you, right? You're 34 years old. Rather than having your mother bring you cigarettes, why don't you become somebody that can actually take care of somebody else? And he walked out. And again, that hit me. You know, I was like, shit, man, I'm 34 and I'm not capable of taking care of very much. And my SAT scores aren't helping me now. You know what I mean? Like doesn't matter anymore. Like that's not manifesting as anything, you know? Um, And so my sober living, my sober living was a dismal place. It was mostly um, people that were on complete disability and um, it was mainly people struggling with mental illness and some addicts like myself. And I hated being there. And I spent a lot of time complaining about it and complaining about the other people that were crazy. And when he said to take care of somebody else, so we had, our freezer had been slowly starting to develop like a block of ice in it over time. And it had gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until there was this little tiny hole up here where all of our like, you know, food stamp stuff, you know, frozen shit was stuffed. And we'd like fight over who could be up there. And I'd be complaining, but I know this sounds like a ridiculous story. I've also eaten no food today and drinking like five of these. So a little bit, I feel like I'm getting a little bit scattered, but this is important, the freezer. Okay, so the freezer's got this block of ice in it and I'd been complaining about it. And he said that, And I remember thinking, oh, fuck it. You know what? I'm going to defrost the freezer. And it was so old. I think actually now there's a setting that you can just defrost a freezer. But this thing had been donated in like probably like 1958. It had been in this sober living for a long time. So you had to unplug it, boil water, open it, put the, the boiling water up in like the little tiny corner part. And it literally just gushed out water over time. And that was how you defrosted the freezer. And it took me like five hours to defrost this freezer. And as it got lower, I found two things in that freezer that I will never forget. I I found a pacifier with like green stuff all over it. And there was no kids in the sober living and a pair of men's tidy whitey underwear were in that freezer that I found as as I was defrosting it. But for the first time in my life or for the first time in a long time, like I took care of something, you know what I mean? Like I did that myself and I started trying to do that as often as I could just right there in my and my sober living. And what I learned was rather than being a victim of my circumstances, I could be the change in my environment that I kind of wanted to see, right? And in that way, I was able to take on a little bit of responsibility and all those little things are slowly what started to build self-esteem. And then the third massive realization, and this is really like my, all of my messaging, 90 days, I had a birthday and I was turning 30 fucking five and I had 90 days and nothing, no driver's license, no ID. I did have a job, I did have a job. I'd gotten a job teaching spin again. I didn't have a checking account because I was still in check systems because I'd been there forever. So I had to go to check cash place and I had my Obama flip phone and I saw my food stamps and all that. And I was turning 35 and I was complaining about it. 
And everybody that I was talking to, you know how it goes. They're like, yeah, but you're up, you're clean, you know, you're sober, man. That's what matters, man, you know. And I remember thinking, yeah, that's not really like doing it for me right now, though, you know, because <laughs> if you could go back to 1998 and see me like walking down the, you know, the hallway in my high school and like the ghost of Christmas future floated in and was like, Janine, stop for a second. Like, have a crystal ball. Do you want to see where you're going to be at 35? Me, I would have been like, yes, definitely show me because I'm sure I'm going to be married and probably living in like a mansion and famous. I don't know for what, but I'll be rich and famous and married. Show me. And if the, if the ghost of Christmas future had been like, yeah, okay, so none of that shit's going to happen. But what you will have going for you that day is that you will be 90 days off of heroin. And for you, that will be a massive achievement at that point in life. <laughs> I'd been like, what the fuck? Like... You're on the wrong side of the school. This is the AP wing. You mean to be on the other side of the school. Like, this cannot possibly be what's happening. That was not working for me in that moment, you know? And I went outside, and the sober living was one of these places where we had, like, couches, indoor couches outside that had been, like, rained on and smelled like mold. You know how it goes. So, and I was smoking other people's cigarettes. Like, I would pull them out of the butts. So I was outside smoking somebody else's cigarettes. And I did this... I did a meditation. I was doing a little meditation series at the time. And it was a meditation on gratitude. And the quote was that it, the meditation was centered around was gratitude unlocks the fullness of life and makes what we have enough and more. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. And I was doing this meditation for like 20 minutes. And one of the other things I really struggled with because I had gone to some meetings in L.A., right? I had. I'm like, oh, it wasn't that bad. I was going to meetings, you know? I had an idea. Everybody's mad at me all the time. But I would hear in meetings, and I couldn't, I couldn't sit through this. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. I would hear that. And I would think, if that's your selling point, I'm gone because I have lost too much. And if your pitch to me is that I'm not gonna regret that, this ain't the program for me, you know? And that was, that was one of my big things. All I thought about was how much I had lost and I had been so smart and I had gone to this great college and then I was in LA and I had lost so much. I had lost too much, you know, that was my big thing. And that day, it was, it was just resonating with me how much I had lost, you know? Because you know how it is. You go on Facebook, and all your friends are, like, buying houses and getting married, and we're on heroin, you know? I'm like, <laughs> you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to want to shut the door on this. The, for, you know, forget it. So I'm outside, and I'm doing this meditation. And I did the meditation, and I opened my eyes. And I saw, and my sober living was in this really shitty area. And I saw out, there was actually a really nice view for my sober living, really pretty. Like mountains, San Diego, mountains. And, and I thought, man, that's really, that's like really beautiful. And then I realized, fuck, that's always been there. Like that mountain didn't just grow. That's always been there, but I just couldn't, I just couldn't see it, you know? But that didn't change. I was, I couldn't see it. And what was inspiring all of this was I realized I'm not dope sick right now. Oh, my God. And this is why I love that we have HA, because only you guys will understand this. I wasn't dope sick, you guys. I wasn't dope sick. Oh, my God. I wasn't dope sick. I didn't need to go find a vein. 
I didn't need to get well. I didn't need to get 20 bucks, you know? And the freedom I felt in that moment and the gratitude I have in that moment, I had in that moment for my body and my health allowed me to see that view for the first time. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's always been there, but I'm just now seeing it because I'm feeling so grateful because I'm not dope sick. Did my heroin addiction make me more grateful? Like, is this a positive thing that came out of that? And I just realized in that moment, holy shit, it is. Like, I'm actually really grateful right now that, that I went through that. And, and what I learned shortly after that, I was reading this book, and there's a phenomenon that's not talked about as much. So everybody has heard of post-traumatic stress, right? When men and women go off to fight overseas, they tell them, okay, you are going to come back one of two ways. You are going to come back status quo, same as you are right now, or you're going to come back fucked up. And what we want is status quo, right? But there's a third way back from trauma that is way less talked about, which is post-traumatic growth. And what I was experiencing in that moment and what we all have the opportunity to experience here is post-traumatic growth. And after a trauma, and this is a very real studied thing, this is not my theory, after a trauma, typically a few things happen. One, you develop a life of spirituality that maybe you weren't necessarily going to have before. You tend to have enhanced relationships with the people in your life, and you have a feeling of empowerment when you come through something like that. And that's what I was experiencing in that moment. And... The whole like LA years and how that wasn't so bad. I had somebody say this to me once, and I always try to share this too when I remember to share this. A boyfriend in LA, we were fighting, and it's so ironic everything that I'm about to tell you that I said, but we were arguing, and he was super pissed at me for doing Coke again, and we were yelling, and I was like, look, man, you are seriously overreacting. It's Coke. It's not like I'm doing fucking heroin. I still have my job. Like, you know, we still live here. I have my car, you know, I've never been arrested. It's not that big of a deal. And I remember he just kind of stopped and he was like, you know what you mean? You're right. You're right. None of those things have happened to you yet. And you're slick enough and you're smart enough that none of those things might ever happen to you. But you'll spend four days out of every seven sick. You're always like about to get fired. You know, you're always broke. But worst of all, You'll have to live your life knowing you're not the woman you were supposed to be. But you're right, you could do that. This was years before any of the stuff I'm talking about now. And I realized heroin brought me to my fucking knees and gave me all of these options. And without the introduction of heroin in my life, I would still be an alcoholic with a part-time job, just getting by, telling everybody I'm fucking fine, I still have a job right? But not fulfilling any, any of my purpose, you know, I would have stayed in that space. And that is why I am actually so grateful that I ended up becoming a heroin addict and that I get to be here with you guys. And once I moved into that gratitude, all of the shame that I had ever felt started to fade away, you know, because I'm not ashamed anymore. I'm actually really glad. I'm so glad that this happened because if I get really honest, The girl with the high SAT scores was not that happy. 
and I wasn't going to help anybody. You know what I want? I wanted to be a divorce lawyer as a teenager. That was my goal in life. I wanted to make my, after my parents shit divorce, I was like, fine, I'll go make a bunch of money off of other people's misery. Like that was my goal. And then my whole twenties, that girl really wasn't fucking happy at all. and was only obsessed in the sadness of what had happened and the future that I had lost. And Neither of those people was ever going to be someone that was able to live in the present moment and have gratitude for a view off of a shitty balcony. Like none of that was going to happen. And with, we don't just get the opportunity here to bounce back. We have the opportunity to bounce forward. And our experiences using give us an edge as we move forward. And if I could leave you guys with anything today, it's that, man. I came in here so embarrassed, not of what I had done, not only of what I had done, but of who I had become, you know? And I don't feel that way anymore. I'm proud of all of that stuff, and I wouldn't take any of it back, you know? And now, when I hear the promises, I don't regret the past, and I don't wish to shut the door on it, you know? And heroin gave me that in a way that, you know, I would not have expected. I have some notes here. Let me just make sure I said everything. Is that okay? Not that I can read them. I was like doing this after I drank a monster and I was like, I should get my thoughts in order. Look <laughs> at my papers. Um, you know, that's it basically. So um, that's all I got. Thank you guys so much for having me. Actually, can I share one more thing? Actually, do you guys mind if I break the rules and share one more thing that I've never shared because my brother's here? Um, this is going to make me cry. This is probably going to make you cry. <clears throat> Whew, I've never shared this story before. You have? Okay. So um, in 2014, right before I got sober for the last time, I was in this like horrible apartment. There was a guy like kidnapped in the back. And I was with really scary people, and it was the most afraid I have ever been in my life. I was, in all the years of my using, um, this was the only time I thought somebody was going to, like, kill me where I was. And I'd been there for about a week. And um, my mom knew where I was, but I did not have a phone, but I must have called her from someone's phone. And I was in, like, a haze. It's like a trap house. And I was sitting on this futon, and the guy walked out, and he said, hey, is Jenny here? And I kind of looked up, and I said, you mean Janine? And he was like, I don't know, I guess. And he was like, here, you got this text. And he threw me a phone. And I looked at it. Let me see if I can get through this. And there was a text, and it said, hi, <clears throat> if my daughter Janine is still there, if somebody could please tell her that at, you know, 2.30 this morning, she became an aunt to a girl, Eleanor, which was my brother's child. And my brother and I had not spoken in years. And we didn't speak for another four years. And I just want to point out that he is here. He drove to come. He's not in recovery. And he drove to watch me speak at midnight on a Friday because we were able to heal our relationship. So if any of you guys have somebody like that in your life, that you have so severely let down, that can be restored. So I just want to say that. That's it. <laughs>